You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Christian Stadler, who teaches strategy at the Warwick Business School in the UK and is also the author of a couple books, co-author of this book right here. It's called Open Strategy, Mastering Disruption from Outside the C-Suite. And an older book, uh, this one called Enduring Success, What We Can Learn from the History of Outstanding Corporations. Welcome, Christian. Thanks for having me, Greg. There's even a third book, but that's written in German only. It was my PhD, which I published as well. Well, well, we have some German listeners out there, so we'll be sure to put that on the website. But look, you're trained as an historian, as I was, and so, of course, I love digging back into historical examples. And I think historians have a certain perspective. They're interested in change, and they're interested in trends. And I think this open strategy book is its kind of like history of the present. You've noticed some trends happening. And look, we all know about the acceleration of change, right? And how we live in a VUCA world. You use that term quite a bit. And, you know, disruption is on everybody's mind. And so this raises some questions about whether the strategy or the approach to strategy, which I guess was perfected and articulated really for the first time in the 1970s and 80s, right? I remember when Michael Porter kind of made it a thing, made it a real discipline, whether or not this approach to strategy needs to be modified or tweaked. And the way in which you're articulating a necessary modification is to challenge the notion that strategy is something which is done exclusively by the folks at the very top of the organization, right? And so when I teach strategy, I teach it as a capstone and we say, all right, now that you've learned operations and now you've learned marketing and now you've learned economics and so forth, now you're allowed to learn strategy because this is going to be the, the province of the folks who are the commanders in the battlefield, the generals, the folks who can look out and see everything. And those are the people we want because they understand the interrelationships, they understand the complementarities, they understand the systems, and we should not leave that to the folks on the ground. But you're saying that we need to open up and the folks designing strategy need to listen not only to folks outside of their organization, but also people within. And what I found interesting about this is that this is the approach that the design thinking folks will say. They'll say, oh yeah, open up your ears, listen, put your ears to the ground, get a sense of what's happening around you. And so in that sense, you're saying that strategy needs to be more like design in, in that sense. So maybe back up and give us a definition of open strategy and contrast it with the sort of canonical view of strategy. Hard to add anything to what you actually put out there already. It's precisely that. It's not, or it should not just be something done by these one or two captains on top, but it makes a lot of sense to involve much larger group of people. And particularly maybe people who are not usually part of this process for two reasons. Number one, if you involve a wider set of people, then you're more likely to get ideas that are different and unusual. I mean, we know this common problem yeah, that companies after a while, uh, you know, start doing the same thing again and again. And you want, you know, how is it possible is, you know, smart people who are leading these organizations? Why is it that no one breaks away from it? But we get 
past dependent over time. And that's true for every one of us. Yeah. So having stimulation from elsewhere helps a lot. And it needs to come with enough force. Yeah. Hiring consultant is typically not enough for that because consultants, in theory, that's what they're supposed to do. But I think in practice, they also speak the sort of language that the executives like to hear. Yeah. That's, you know, they want to do the next project. So they typically don't steer away too far. Of course, they are exceptions, but, you know, that is commonly. So, you know, fresh ideas. That's the first reason. The second reason why I think it makes sense to involve now particularly large groups of people, that is, and in this sort of, for the second reason, it would probably be people inside the organization, is that most strategies fail during the execution phase. Yeah, It's not that the ideas are stupid, but for somebody who works on the operational front line, they will think, well, you know, what does it mean for me? That's, you know, it's undoable. I don't understand it. I don't like it. It will make my job potentially obsolete. Involving people helps to bring them on board, gives them the comfort of thinking about the effects of potential new directions already in the design phase of a new strategy. Now, of course, I don't think anybody would deny the importance of getting buy-in, right? And so including people... Once one has already decided on the strategy, I think most people would say, of course, you have to do that. I've been in universities where after the strategy has been articulated internally, then that's when the the marketing campaign begins, right? And so they'll often have these feedback sessions, right? But of course, the feedback is really more of a propaganda session, right? Where it's like, okay, we want your feedback on a decision where your feedback will have absolutely no impact on the decision. So I think there is this idea of buy-in, but bringing people... Well, if I may interrupt here, yeah, people are not stupid. So they, they will notice that this is just, they were invited to cheerlead and they typically they don't like that. So you somehow shoot yourself in the foot if you're trying to do it this way. Now, it has happened that sometimes organizations did it with originally the intention that this is more just, you know, fine-tuning the things. And here, you know, I would also argue that's already something, yeah? A strategy maybe has a few big headlines, but there's hundreds of smaller decisions that still need to be made, and they can go in many different directions. So that, that's something. But it turns out occasionally then that, a few things that maybe were not anticipated beforehand, which are more wider, more corporate, still happen after you involve people. I remember, for example, Steelcase, uh, American company that produces office furniture, had a strategy jam. Yeah, sort of. You can think about it's like a big online conference, and the big headlines were set. Yeah, and they didn't want to really change anything that was too dramatic. But out of this jam. Somebody mentioned that there was a group who had involved their customers in the development of some furniture, and that was hugely popular. Not so much that the furniture was better, but the key accounts customers, they liked this involvement part, and they adopted that now corporate-wide afterwards. Yeah, so, so they did things beyond what they've anticipated once they started to engage people, at least smart executives too. Mm-hmm. But look, isn't there a danger of getting people involved too early in the process? When I talk to folks in my university, I say, well, why don't you solicit input at the strategy formulation stage? And they'll say things like, well, the more people who provide input, then the more agendas that we have to somehow satisfy. And so it seems like they're confusing voice with vote, right? So, I mean, do organizations sometimes fall prey to the notion that if we ask someone their input, then we are giving them sort of a veto or a vote and we need to clarify right, the difference between 
providing input and actually having some kind of vote, right? You're not putting up the strategy for a vote. You know, it's not like, it's not democratically decided strategy. It's crowdsourced strategy to some degree, right? Yes. Yeah. And you have to be very deliberate and explicit about this. In Germany, there's this initiative, I'll call it, yeah, Premier Cola. There was a cola recipe, yeah, Afri-Cola, it was called, and that was discontinued. Some people got the formula uh, because they were very passionate about this old formula and wanted really, in a collective approach, start to keep this alive under the new corporate helm of Premier Cola. But this turned out into everyone involved in every nitty-gritty type decision because precisely that thing that you pointed out happened, where it was not clear who is going to make the decisions, uh, somehow the impression everyone has a say here, and it becomes unmanageable. So clearly, you do need to be explicit about this. Now, I want to get back to this idea of consulting, right? Because companies have always been open to input into their strategy, and the primary source of input has been consultants, right? And so it's a $30 billion a year business strategy consulting. I think it's probably a bigger business if you extend it past strategy and into more kind of implementation and strategy light. But why is that inadequate? I mean, after all, these are the experts, right? So typically, if you want to get some medical treatment, you go to the doctor, throw something up on Kaggle and say, hey, what should I do? So what's wrong with the consulting world? Why does it fail to deliver what you're describing? No, they're not. it's not entirely wrong, by the way. I know there's lots of really good consultants out there and they're providing value. Yeah. So I would not position this as you either use consultant or you do open strategy, but even consultants can use mechanisms of that kind to help them. Now, that book actually that we wrote was written together with a small German consulting company, Innovative Management Partners, they're called IMP. And what they offer their clients is helping them to open up strategy-making processes. They do things which I think many consultants do. They run workshops, yeah, but they do so in a very specific way. I'll give you maybe one example of a workshop type that they do that opens up the strategy. So they run something what they call a nightmare competitor contest. Yeah, The intention is to think about companies that do not exist, but if they were to exist, there would be an absolute nightmare for you. It works really well if you are in a setting where there could be disruption. And the way they then organize this workshop is typically have somewhere between 40 and 60 participants. Half of them are from within the company and half of them from outside the company. They carefully curate who are the outsiders that join, that they bring the sort of right type of expertise that could help in situations that the company might face. Yeah, and Then they create mixed teams who compete against each other around developing these ideas, developing their business models uh, on those uh, ideas uh, as well. So, you know, that is a consulting business, but it is in a very specific manner where you get this internal knowledge plus fresh pairs of eyes from outside and you put that together, which is different from a group of consultants just working on an issue almost independently of and then presenting a solution afterwards that, you know, I, I spent a short while myself in consulting after my PhD before I returned to uh, academia. And yeah, we, we developed some solutions which... The, you know, having the benefit of hindsight, they looked fantastic on paper. But uh, as soon as the folks in the organization saw it, they said, well, you know, nice, but never going to work here. Yeah, I'll sometimes run these workshops, you know, red team exercises. But usually the group is entirely 
internal, right? And I never thought to bring in external folks, although we do that in university where we have the students come in and do something like this. What the Germans always stress is you need to really have half of the participants from outside and you need to have participants who have the ability to bang uh, the table. Because if you don't have that, there's always the sort of great idea, but it doesn't work here. Yeah, Then the internal voices will drown out anything that comes from outside. Uh, uh, that's why you have this sort of right balance uh, with strong outside voices. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, startups are, their boundaries are very porous, right? So as a startup, you have really no clue what your strategy is, right? That's the kind of the Steve Blank's definition of a startup is that it doesn't really have a strategy yet. But the strategy formulation process for a startup is one that sources ideas from investors and from customers and from employees. (laughs) So in a way, I think what you're advocating is that the large companies start behaving a little bit more like startups in this regard, right? And to remind themselves that whatever strategy they think is mature, they need to treat it as if it's immature to some degree. Yeah, and if people look at my book, it's very tool-focused. We look at different phases of the strategy-making process, and we have different tools and instruments, uh, some of them workshop-type instruments, like the one I described as a nightmare competitor, which lent themselves to a particular phase and a particular situation of the strategy-making process. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you mentioned the wisdom of the crowd in there. And look, there's lots of ways to tap into the wisdom of the crowd. And I teach a course on behavioral finance where I talk about the crowd can offer wisdom. The crowd can also steer you in the wrong direction. So, you know, having a vision which goes against the grain is oftentimes the way to go. But you have to open yourself up to the notion that the crowd might know more than you. So how does one know, and this is the problem as an investor, right? How do you know when you're smarter than the crowd and how do you know when the crowd is smarter than you? I simply have no answer for that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that is managerial discretion. It's a weighting problem, right? It's about how much weight do you assign to these different perspectives when they differ? Exactly, yeah. And if I were in the shoes of somebody who is making these big decisions uh, in an organization, uh, I have some sort of exercises which comes with some really powerful arguments that I'll obviously listen more to than others that seem to be a bit more superficial in that. Yeah, So it very much depends on the specific setting, but there is no magic formula in the end. It's not I throw this in a machine and here I am, I'm all set and I'll be winning. Now, you allude to some biases. And so I was wondering, do you think that the sort of well-established companies, one of the reasons why they fail to identify and and generate good ideas and evaluate them and and execute on them is because is because of the people or is it more because of the process right is there a way in which the organization ultimately creates a type of groupthink so that the individuals lose their capacity to generate these ideas or is it that the ideas continue to get generated but they get extinguished by the processes of the organization. So and I'm, I'm not sure if we can entirely separate uh, these two, but I tend to lean more towards the way the machine works, yeah? So the process, how it is, yeah? The, with groupthink being a classic problem, you have these people working together. Individually, they might think differently, but none of them really pushes against it, yeah? We know that in the disruption context very widely where 
technology for digital photography was developed by Kodak, but Kodak was never really able to overcome the old existing business model where you make money from selling film. Yeah, that, that seems to be the sensible uh, thing to do. Even benchmarking doesn't typically help with that because after a while in the established industry, everyone in the industry seemed to think the same way. Think back to when streaming services were first coming in the market and starting to become a headache for cable television companies. Uh, what they did is they doubled down on the old strategy. They they actually increased subscription fees even more. They increased advertising time even more to make up for the loss that they had because people were leaving them. And they looked across to their competitors. They were all doing the same. So it seems absolutely sensible yeah, to respond that, that way. So that, that's a really hard thing, I think, to escape as an organization. The other big problem you have in large companies in particular is silo thinking, where you have departments duplicating work, not talking to each other, where just being able to connect different departments sometimes would uh, lead to this recombination of knowledge, which is a main kind of mechanism to create new ideas. But it's hard to do in large organizations. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think part of it is motivated reasoning, right? So for me, it's kind of hard to fathom how you could, say, be at a cable company and not see the tsunami of streaming coming your way, right? That would require the kind of psychological blinders that I don't think, you know, intelligent, it's hard for me to understand how you could be an intelligent person and a graduate of a good business school and not see that. So is it they, they don't see it or is it that they just don't want to deal with it. Right? Or they're like, I'll be gone. Why be gone? IBG, YBG, you know, this is my successor's problem and not my problem. I think part of it, of course, is that as well. Yeah. And when you think about the pressures, I wouldn't even blame people for that. Yeah. Because the pressures you have to meet the quarterly, if you are in a publicly quoted uh, company, they're tremendous. Yeah. And uh, if you don't make your quarterlies for a few times, you're out. Yeah. So, the mechanisms make it really difficult to break away from that. Smaller companies sometimes have a bit more freedom in this space. Uh, I've had some really interesting conversations with mid-sized companies recently who are owned by the individual who runs them as well. And one of the, the stories that I really loved was from a company that produces chocolate uh, somewhere in the rural areas in Austria. They have roughly 500 flavors in circulation. But every year, they introduce 60 to 80 new flavors. And the owners told me that he doesn't test them in the sort of usual way the industry does, because then his flavors would never survive. He has crazy stuff like having insects in chocolate. He has chocolate made with pig's blood. But he just pushes them in the market and see what happens. Uh, 60 to 80 every year and kills some of the old ones. He even takes out really successful flavors because he says, well, if I take out one of the successful flavors, I create room for 10 new flavors that are uh, a bit smaller. He's driven by that, but you can't do that in the publicly quoted company that people would think that you're mad. Well, that made me wonder whether or not you could apply some of the techniques that you elaborate on. So most of the techniques I think are employee focused, right? Sourcing a lot of the insight that is embedded within the organization, frontline employees who have some insight into kind of what's happening out in the field. But you also have your consumers, right? So a lot of companies have, whether it's franchise associations or customer user groups, right? But also investors, right? So one of the good things about a privately owned company is that you can sit down with your investors, right? And have a conversation and kind of crowdsource insight 
from them, it's a little bit more difficult to sit down with the analysts, right? at least in the U.S., and have an open conversation. It's more you make a press release and, you know, and that's it. And then you read what they say about you in the press. And I guess that's a form of crowdsourcing information. If you're publicly traded, you've got buy-side analysts who are constantly second-guessing you and so forth. But is there a way of leveraging the techniques of insight solicitation across all of these different domains? Well, yeah, you can always include outsiders. Yeah, I gave you the one example with the workshop, but you can do that with digital tools as well. Yeah, if you hold one of those jams, you can invite outsiders. The biggest one I've ever come across was done by IBM in 2007, I think 2006. They involved 150,000 people and there were over 60 partners and partners by the companies who were also participating in this jam session. Massive investments afterwards, 100 million, and the new business units that were created had revenues of 750 million. So that's where your partners from outside were brought into this conversation as well. Well, look, it's easiest to do if you have a very narrowly scoped problem, right? So let's suppose you're trying to develop a new flavor for a beverage, okay? Then that's something you can throw that up on Facebook or whatever, and you can have a poll, and I think that's easier. If you have a narrowly defined, say, data science problem, you can throw that up on Kaggle, right, and and get that. But how do you crowdsource some kind of more key fundamental issues, right? Should we get out of cable? And just, you know, how do we address this radical change in our industry? How do we crowdsource those sorts of insights? So that tends to work better in these workshop type setups, yeah, where you can have a selected group of people, but they will still be people who will not usually be sitting in this room and you carefully curate whom you want to have in this setting and then let them work and develop ideas on dimensions that you're interested in. But you give them sufficient time to do so. And once they are completed, let's say you bring them together for three days to work on something, that will require still further work, where then you know, a consulting team would typically take over from that who is involved in this earlier stage as well. That, I think, is better for those big nitty questions than you know, a big crowdsourcing platform. Having said that, there is, of course, uh, organizations like Unilever who started organically develop these internal messaging boards and people started to comment more and more. And it also happens to have conversations around strategic issues in this platform. So not entirely excluded, but less suitable for the digital, very massive type crowdsourcing exercises. And so how does a leadership team communicate that they are open to this? One of the things that I'm always discussing with companies is that if you survey a typical person in the company who has identified a problem or identified an idea, the, the very first thing is, who do they communicate it to? And in most organizations, it's not clear who you're supposed to communicate this to. So is it specific solicitation moments, or is there a way to convert this into a continuous process? I've seen both, yeah. Probably the, the moment, the event character helps because people, of course, have their day-to-day -day jobs as well and they can't do that permanently. So it, it tends to work slightly better if it's an event character and you do a day, a couple of days, three days or so where you concentrate uh, on these things. That's these jams, yeah, that's how they work. Uh, and it increases participation rates uh, substantially. But some companies develop these 
online culture where people constantly comment on things to keep it alive, the top leadership needs to be visible in this space as well. And you need to have strong moderation. So, you know, the illusion that this is somehow making less work and you can almost sort of outsource this to somebody else, that is an illusion. You need somebody who sits on top of this, who moderates, who filters out things. There's crowdsourcing tools as well that can help you with this. I've recently come across something from a Dutch company called Circulitic, yeah? And they have this process where you, as an executive team, you can have a question, yeah? Well, or can have a few questions, yeah? Say, Sam, we lost 10% revenues in the last half a year. Why is that the case? Yeah, You throw it out to your company, people answer. And a few days later, everyone who answered in the first round gets 15 answers, which AI identifies to be very different from their own answer. So they confronted now with 15 other ideas that are uh, very different. They rate those ideas. They can respond to those ideas. And then once again, AI is going through the the new set of data and it gives the executive team the five best and the five worst answers from the process. That I thought is a really interesting, intriguing way of how you can gather ideas and it can be on slightly broader questions from your people. I remember in the early days of Amazon, they used to have a link on their page, which allowed you to make suggestions. And I remember I made use of that and I always got some kind of response. And I forget when it was, but they shut that thing down. And now, of course, it's impossible to make any kind of suggestion. And the funny thing is that nowadays with these fast developments in AI, it would probably be possible to do things like this on scale once again. Yeah, there was really this period. You would have been absolutely flooded with stuff and impossible to process it. But you can nowadays. Right. And they could just figure out which ones are most frequent and which ones are most similar and then provide a word cloud up to somebody and at the leadership. Yeah. So maybe we'll see that. But, you know, with these kinds of events, we did something like this at my business school at Berkeley probably like a decade ago. But it was only doable because somebody sponsored it, right? Some outsider donated a bunch of money and said, here, you should do this. And that was the last time we had anything like that. And I remember talking to one of our senior leaders and I said, yeah, we should do this fairly often. And they're like, well, we, I mean, we did it 10 years ago. Like, isn't that enough? And it's like, no, maybe we should do it a little more frequently. But you talk about- And companies have budget for this stuff, yeah? So it's not as if they don't spend money on strategy making. Mikey Porter did a study where he was showing that I think 20%, 22% of the CEO's time is spent on strategy making. That alone is pretty costly. Then, you know, the 30 billion spent on strategy consultants every year. So clearly companies do invest in strategy making. Might as well put some of this budget aside for something of that kind. You start off the book with one of my favorite examples, which is the Vikings in Greenland, right? And and all they need to do is look at their neighbors and kind of see what they were doing and maybe copy some of their techniques, which makes me think that, you know, the, the stronger the culture, the more difficult it is to ingest ideas. We talk about a strong culture. Is it possible to have a strong culture that is one built on continuous change? Or is that sort of an oxymoron to have a flux-oriented culture? No, you can have a learning culture, yeah. So that is possible. You're of course right that when things run smooth for a long time, companies think that they found the recipe and there's no obvious reason to change things. Uh, Then things don't go so well anymore and something more dramatic happens. 
Yeah. The, the list of examples is endless on this. Some of them turn around nicely. Uh, you know, I think Microsoft, strong beginning, a few years where things were not looking quite so good, but substantial turnaround uh, again. I don't think they've done that through open strategy, but the fact that you know organizations can make turnarounds, uh, that's I think that's proven. But that, that did require an enormous kind of cultural change, right? And it required getting rid of a lot of people, right? Yes, it did. Yes. So disrupting oneself is, I like to say leaders don't change because they see the light, but because they feel the heat, right? How do you get people to act after seeing the light rather than waiting until they feel the heat? It's very difficult. I mean, Clayton Christensen, who came up with this disruption idea, always stressed that you have to frame it as a threat and not as an opportunity. Otherwise, nothing happens. Uh, the nightmare competitor uh, framing is precisely that because there's an understanding if things are just an opportunity, then yeah, sure, we'll do it, but tomorrow. Whereas if something is really worrying executives, then they will start acting. Mm-hmm. Now, you also talk about secrecy and I think a lot of companies are concerned that if they bring too many people into their strategy process, they'll give away their secrets. But in the venture world, in the startup world, right? I, I teach my startup students, you should tell every single person you meet what you're doing, right? You're in a taxi cab, an Uber driver, and just tell them, oh, you know, here's my pitch, because there are a million people out there with the same ideas, and you're not going to succeed because of your idea, right? <laughs> you're going to succeed because you're able to get people on board to help you implement this vision. So do companies overestimate the importance of their trade secrets, and they think that we need to have this strategy, I mean, like as if, you know, in warfare, right? So in warfare, you obviously don't want the enemy to know where you're going to invade. Why is it that companies think that way? So in your neck of the woods, it's easy to convince people that secrecy is not the sort of most important thing to do. It's already more difficult if you go to other parts of the US. It certainly becomes much more difficult when you go to some of the emerging economies, where it's also really hard to protect any type of knowledge uh, in these spaces. Uh, I spent a couple of years uh, in Kenya during the pandemics, and people are constantly afraid that somebody steals their uh, idea in the business world. And not entirely without reason. Yeah? If you're a small entrepreneur, there you start working with a bank when you have a fintech idea. And voila, a little bit later, the bank comes out with the same idea, but other than you, they can scale, which is less of a problem if you sit in California because there'll be venture capital. But if you sit in Nairobi, getting substantial funding is really hard. So the bank is at a massive advantage here. So it is more of a problem in some areas. Now, the good news is that you can really control what you share and what you do not share when you open up and try to get input from people. If it comes to that uh, lot of details of formulating a, sh- a strategy, then you probably have to reveal more. But for this, you can have a much more controlled setting. You bring people in who sign non-disclosure agreements, and it's much more similar to what the consultant typically would do in this space. So here you can contain that. If you talk about idea generation, uh, you don't need to tell people much in order to get their uh, ideas, and you don't need to share that much afterwards what you do with that information either. One of my favorite examples that we came across was from the intelligence uh, community in the United States. Uh, They've put out this request for people to come up with algorithms that help you to, to track 
the movement of bisons during the sort of summer and winter migration periods, and they didn't identify themselves as being intelligence services. Yeah, so people who participated in this, they thought they are helping scientists to track bisons. Yeah, but they really did that because they wanted to get algorithm that they could help during that period when Russia first occupied Crimea. Because soldiers, people out there in the villages, they also post photos. Yeah, and you can use the geodata that comes with these postings in order to do that. Uh, so you can really, you know, ask the crowd for input without even telling them what stuff is really about. So I like this analogy of the idea surface, right? In, in security world, we talk about the attack surface, right? And the larger your attack surface, the more vulnerable you are, right, to a threat. But I think the larger your kind of idea openness surfaces, I guess we need to come up with a term for that, the more likely it is that you're going to hit upon the good ideas. So how can you as an organization or as an individual expand that surface so that you are more likely to come into contact with these good ideas? You have a test, right? In the book, there's this openness test, which I think is all about evaluating the degree to which you are likely to encounter and ingest these new ideas. And there's a bunch of pieces to it, all of which I love. And is that the place to start? Like just maybe start with a way of measuring this surface? I think that's a good place to start. And while we can't talk through the entire test that we have in the book, I can give you, our listeners here, a bit of a sense of, of what we have in mind. Yeah. So one thing you have to ask yourself is whether you're comfortable with stuff not being from yourself. Yeah. If you have no problem with ideas coming from elsewhere, that obviously puts you in a better place. The other thing you need to ask yourself is whether you can live with not being in control of stuff, yeah, where sometimes other people push ahead and you let it happen rather than trying to be entirely in control. Again, then you're much more likely to be comfortable with this. An ability to be comfortable with happy coincidences is another element of that, where you don't have to be plan on everything, but sometimes stuff happens. And if you're comfy uh, with that, then again, you're much more likely to fall into this. Now we get more nitty gritty and more detailed uh, in these tests. Yeah. But that's essentially it. Yeah. Laid back, open to other stuff. That's a good place to be in. Now, are those things in conflict with human nature to some degree, right? You know, people don't like change. You know, fight or flight or freeze kind of kicks in when you encounter too much change. Is this sort of an effort to overcome some of our instincts? Or do you think that these are things which most people can find within and it's just a question of retraining? I think there's things that you can do to make yourself more comfortable with this stuff. Now, first of all, I don't ask people to change radically every other week. It's a question of degree. But, you know, just things like we have this or had this tradition, as we are both historians in Austria, of saloons coming together uh, that sort of 18th, 19th century of people with very different backgrounds and have conversations about all sorts of questions. That gives your mind the opportunity to be confronted with many different ideas. We lose that if we stick just within our narrow expertise, then even the friends we hang out with do all the same thing that we are doing. And I'm a neuroscientist and everyone I hang out with is also doing exactly the same thing. So 
I'll never meet anybody else. Uh, that doesn't help. Yeah. But uh, if you make a bit more of a conscious effort uh, of this kind, that's, uh, I think that's helpful. Now, for me personally, for example, I have still a very strong connection to people from the small village back in Austria where I, uh, I come from. Yeah. And it's a very different setting from the, the sort of UK, very global type of uh, approach. And despite this being, you know, lifelong friends, uh, it's also really cool for me to still have this connection. Uh, to people who have different perspectives uh, on things than, than I often have. Uh, try to preserve this kind of thing, yeah, if you have that in your life. The other thing, we both at the university, reading, we can always recommend, read a lot and read widely. That does open your mind. It's this lovely Netflix series, I think it was called Inside Bill's Brain a few years back, which was about Bill Gates. And wherever he went, you saw him walking around with his massive bag for with books. If Bill Gates finds time to read, probably most people listening in today would be able to carve out uh, an hour a day for reading. I, I just went to Austria last month and in my rollerboard, I had uh, more books than pairs of underwear. Uh, maybe I shouldn't share that, but, and I think you, you meant salon, not saloon. So in America, we uh, so, saloon is where we go to drink in the wild west. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad place to be either. Yeah. But I had a terrible talk years ago with, you know, I'm not a native speaker. Uh, I was giving a talk in New Orleans and I uh, told a story from what's Albuquerque, but I called it Albuquerque, which, you know, people just, what is he talking about? Sometimes these are the things that as a German speaker, I, I still struggle with. Now, of course, we could hold our salon in a saloon. That, that would be wonderful. Right. But then this sort of suggests also that an intentional reshuffling of people could potentially be valuable, right? So we have people that, I use the example of a biofilm, right? When we brush our teeth, primarily what we're doing is we're just moving all the bacteria around so they don't develop any strong relationships with the other bacteria. So it's easier to sweep them away or... I have friends in the foreign service and they rotate them every three years. And in some sense, this is crazy because just when you start to learn the culture and the language and get to know people, that's when you move. But there's a logic to it, which is that you don't want people to develop those kind of routines. So in an organization, does it make sense to reshuffle people or at least maybe disrupt their communication channels? Is there a way that you can bake in serendipity to, into the organization? Absolutely, yeah. So, and I have two two things to that, yeah. One one is a study, one is a real life example. Shell used to have personal planners for everyone, and these personal planners, like in the foreign service, they send people around, yeah. You as a Shell employee, obviously, they don't have this system today anymore; it wouldn't work, yeah. But you practically had no say on this, yeah. They told you, okay, the next four years you're going to be in Indonesia, and you either went to Indonesia or you left the company, and of course, that created these dynamics that you explained. Now, study, there is uh, work by Adam Kleinbaum from Dart College where he looked at uh, sidewards careers, yeah, when people didn't move upwards but sidewards. And what he found in this study, I think it was a massive technology company. He doesn't name the company in this uh, study. And he saw that this was extremely important to overcome this silo thinking problem because these were the people who now had connections across different uh, silos and could bring knowledge across those silos. Yeah. And also, I think rotation in and out of the company is another way to harness new ideas. And you'll see people who will 
you know, leave Google and then come back to Google after a few years at a different company, at a startup maybe, and that then they show up with fresh ideas and fresh perspectives. Well, do we need to do more of this in academia, do you think? In some ways, academia is more open than, say, large organizations because we're not told where to be and what to do. But in some sense, we do think about our discipline and we think about our colleagues within the discipline and the journals and so forth. Is there a way we could evaluate someone for tenure and say, 20% of your articles need to be published (laughs) in a different discipline or something like that? Well, I'm glad we are in the tenured position because otherwise these kind of things can lead us to not getting it, <laughs> these ideas. It's, it's a really difficult one because uh, in the end, yeah, you get promoted because you have depths of expertise published in certain journals and it's extremely difficult to publish in these journals. So if you start doing other things on top of it, almost impossible. What I do see, I think I, uh, some people who have now, they've got tenure, now they have more freedom and they start to do stuff that they always want to do. And that's when they sometimes reach out, maybe work with colleagues in different departments, maybe it doesn't even translate into publication also, but they purely find it interesting. That freedom is fantastic. I mentioned earlier that I started to work with Martin Reeves on AI questions a fair bit at the moment. And our agenda is much less of a hardcore scholarly academic agenda, but we want to understand what's going on in this space at the moment. So we do things that we can share and it's fantastic and interesting for people, but I could not publish this. Yeah, If I were to do it in a way that I can publish it, it takes so long. By the time I can publish it, it's irrelevant Yeah, because it's moving so fast at the moment. And for organizations, the question of what I need to do in this AI space is one that is now and a few years uh, from now, they will have moved on. So that freedom we have gives us at least the ability to do it. Not everyone likes to do it. Now, now another part of the surface area where you can ingest new ideas is other industries, right? So, you know, oftentimes when I work with companies, they're in, say, wealth management. I'll talk to them about Spotify and Netflix and so forth. And the first impression is, well, why are we learning about entertainment? We're financial advisors. Do you think that cross-industry insights are increasingly more important? I mean, you know, the way in which we teach strategy, first couple of weeks, we're doing like industry analysis. You're in retail, and so best practices in retail and so forth. But in today's world, the insights that develop within one industry diffuse fairly rapidly to other industries, right? I think it's one of the best ways to do it. Uh, there's still always this, oh, it doesn't work in our industry, pushback that you get, but that would be the way to go. We do, I think, also in the classroom, try to do it because, well, many of us use case studies, yeah? And case studies is essentially about trying to develop uh, some sort of analogies that you can reapply in other settings uh, when you find similar conditions. Whether this is uh, successful, then in the sense that uh, our students will in future also do that, that I'm not sure, yeah? Uh, but we do try to do that, I think, many of us in the classroom. Yeah, now, look, the test that you offered is a test for individuals. And I always wonder, can you apply the kind of big five personality profile to a company, right? Like openness. What would it mean to say that a company has an, an open um, personality? Is it enough to take a bunch of really open people? If you make everybody in the organization open, does that lead to an open organization? Or... Is there something else that you need besides, can you have a bunch of people that aren't themselves open 
and yet have an organization that is open because of the processes that you have in place? Do you need open individuals to have an open organization? Well, certainly at the top, you need it, yeah. Uh, and we did test uh, our uh, tool as well and saw that particularly for top managers, it made a difference when they were falling into the more open space, both in terms of how likely organizations were to then use some of these open strategy approaches and how successful they were in using them as well. So I don't think it's possible to do that if the top management is not really fully into, yeah, into this. Further down the line, I don't think everyone needs to fall into, into this. Yeah, At one point, there'll be enough momentum to carry those who do maybe are personally not so much into it. Now, do you think that executives and leaders, how do they maintain their openness? Do they need sort of to check in periodically with some openness coach, right? I mean, you know, how do they get the sense? Do they need a report card from their subordinates? Like, how do you, I talk a lot about how education is no longer this thing, which you get when you're, you know, in your twenties that you then amortize for 40 years, right? Education is something that's continuous and ongoing. Do you think that universities are going to see the kind of their product evolve so that they're providing more lifelong input into leadership development sort of we do but right now it's like peaks early and then you have a little bit this kind of tail of executive training and so forth so in warwick Graham, we introduced it's probably now six seven years ago i think yeah a doctoral program for senior executives and i've actually for the first two years i was the director of this program and it's a fantastic uh, piece where you bring in now people who have more or less achieved everything in life. Yeah, They are very senior executives. They are owners of organizations. And they're still looking for this one thing they've never done. Yeah? They've not yet achieved this pinnacle in the academic world. But the way we organize this program for us is they have a business problem and then they use the methodologies that we can train them that you would usually do in doctoral research, but to solve this problem and you develop some sort of practical insights uh, in these issues. Uh, for example, one of the students I supervised was partly owning and running a large asset management company in West Africa. And as part of that process, he was investigating and starting to set up a, an office in London. Now, in a kind of real life experiment type uh, setting, he tried out things but use some of those thoughts that you can have from uh, academia. That's a, a fantastic way to also make this interesting for senior executives. Now, we can't scale that. That's the only problem because it needs detailed attention uh, of a supervisor and you can't do this uh, on a massive scale. Sure, but other universities could consider it. So I guess it well, yeah, you can, you can do that. If Bill Gates uh, applied for this program, would you let his... I would take him. He, he doesn't have a bachelor's. You'd still let him in, right? Yes. So if he has been asking you about this, just give me my number. I'm, I'm prepared to supervise him personally. Now, do you think that the idea of open strategy is really, it's history contingent? In other words, the extent to which your strategy needs to be open or closed is really a function of the rate of change in the external environment? Yes, but you know, you can, because you're implying that it needs substantial changes in order for this to be useful. And, and to some extent, that's true. But even if you have a stable environment, it doesn't prevent you from bringing in 
ideas on some dimensions, be it new product ideas, be it a lot of new market opportunities where you can still uh, engage larger groups of people in this. Yeah. So I wouldn't exclude that, but nonetheless, yes, you know, more opportunities where there's more radical change on the horizon. Well, Christian, thanks so much for joining me. This is really a fascinating discussion. I love this book, Open Strategy. I think it's now going to be incorporated into the canon, <laughs> right? I've certainly... <laughs> in the canon. Yeah, I've mentioned it to my students. And we didn't even chat about really enduring success, right? And so it's great to see more historians out there practicing strategy. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.